Welcome to Creation Conversations with Joe Hubbard and John Mackay. Join us each week as we answer your questions and common objections to the Bible, creation, and Noah's flood. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good morning, good evening, good afternoon, wherever you're joining us from around the planet. Welcome back to Creation Conversations. It's good to see there are already people watching, which is wonderful. And uh, we're here on sort of the back end of uh, another uh, Creation Conversations meeting slash broadcast, which we'll tell you a little bit about later. But uh, we've been here for a little while now, so it's time to go into our main broadcast for this evening, which is, of course, our questions and answers special. And uh, basically, since we started up again after Christmas, we've ended up with a lot more engagement and a lot more discussion in the chat, which is wonderful. And we do appreciate that. Uh, but we have uh, promised to deal with some of the questions that have come through as a result of that, that we haven't been able to get a chance to answer on our main programs that we've done previously. So we're going to be dealing with those questions this evening, as well as our normal ministry reports and a few important updates as well. But of course, if you want to get your question in as we continue with this program, please do so. Uh, if you have a general question, a question on one of the topics we've dealt with previously, or a question about one of the answers that we've given to a question, any of those things are great. So get your questions in now for the whole of the team. Uh, we're joined by the entire team. We've got John, we've got Craig, we've got Glenn, Diane, and Sam. So it's uh, it's really good to see you all. And we'll go around each other in a minute and see how we're all doing and give our own little uh, ministry update. But Sam, why don't you fill us in to begin with about what we've been doing uh, just an hour ago. Yeah, absolutely. Very exciting stuff here on, on Creation Research. We're on the cutting edge of uh, of content because we've actually managed to secure an interview with uh, the banana man himself, uh, Ray Comfort, who will be airing our interview with next week. Uh, and re really do trust us when we say you definitely don't want to miss this. There are some absolute gems of information in there. Um, it was. It went really well. Really, really uh, nice guy, um, and it was. It was. It was just nice to just chat with him. Uh, we talked about all sorts of things. Talked about faith, Bible reading, Operation London, all sorts of things. So, uh, but uh, yeah, tune in and, and find out what we uh, managed to uh, have a chat with him about next week. In particular, there's been a, a number of questions and comments uh, on our YouTube videos uh, and questions that have been sent in, particularly regarding Ray Comfort and some of his beliefs, specifically around repentance and faith and whether or not it's a work, works-based gospel. And we actually brought these things up with uh, Ray and ended up having a really good discussion about what he actually believes. So um, don't necessarily go along with videos that have been chopped and changed together, as there's plenty of those out on the internet. Come and watch something which is completely uh, st straight up and straight from the horse's mouth, as they say, uh, because uh, Ray deals with these things really, really clearly and uh, well, very You could actually well. say straight from the banana's mouth for this. Straight one. from the banana, anything like that, absolutely. <laughs> well, um, it's good to, good to all be here, and we will dive into some questions. So we're going to try something a little bit new. We're going to try breaking up some of our uh, little reports and stuff and mixing in with a bit of the main uh, topic, which of course tonight is the questions and answers. So why don't we quickly go around, see how we're all doing, and uh, then maybe John, if you'd like to give us our first ministry update. But uh, over in the States, shall we go first? How are you doing, Glenn? Doing great. Staying busy. 
Good stuff, good stuff. Well, you're going to bring us a, an update a little later about some of the, the fossils you've been finding. Uh, and uh, Diane and Craig in Australia, how have you been doing? Oh, well, yeah. I'm well. I don't know about Craig. <laughs> how are you doing? Well, I, was I was waiting for the normal question, uh, Joe, about weather because Englishmen always want to talk well, about I know weather. That. We, we do get a lot of comments about it, not, not the weather again. Yeah, yeah, anyway. you you your climate's terrible, but you've got so much weather you have to talk about it. Um, <laughs> but I, I'm in a place today where it's just like that. It's snowing up in the mountains. It's pouring rain outside. And I'm supposed to go looking for dinosaur fossils today. Anyway, that's that's where I am. And tonight I'm running sort of um, a, a outreach meeting, but more about that in the ministry report. Sure. Well, why don't you um, kick things off, John, with a, with a bit of a ministry report? Why don't we get uh, some of your fossil-y photos and stuff going? Because uh, you were showing us just earlier a pretty spectacular fossil. It was indeed. I'm going to hold up some first, and then after I've held up the one... This map's a little bit harder to see. You can take it over, Joe. Now, tonight we'll be using some of these, particularly with the kids. I've been told there's a lot of kids there, and I'm just a big kid at heart. So uh, I have a bunch of quartz crystals, and we'll be talking about how you would recognise the evidence of design. Because one of the things Ray Comfort brought out was just how useful it is to be, be sure that everybody can recognise this. Our quartz, it's six-sided crystals all the time. And if you can throw a dice to get six every time, you know they've rigged it. Same with quartz crystals. Somebody's rigged the result. Simple evidence, one that you should be familiar with just from playing with dice. Oh, and we have a nice fossil we're going to use tonight, Agonia type. I know some of these words are strange to you, but it just means angle. You see the angles along on the edge? That's where it gets its name from. So all of these names, even if they're Greek to you, <laughs> most of them are, they actually have a meaning. Now, I'm going to show up one now because it's an opportunity for some of you out there to see if you can recognise it. That's a pretty important fossil. And no, we don't own it, but it is owned by a friend of mine who is willing to sell it. Um, Joe, you'd better show them the close-up, clear picture that we took so they can see it um, right with their own eyes and I can talk about it. You got the picture ready there to flick up, Joe? Because this is available to us now. Yep, there's my hand. Can you see the octopus? Now, we can actually get both halves of this for our museum, and he's willing to do a deal, but we can't afford it at the moment. But have a look. Can you see the actual tentacles? Um, can you see the actual... Can you see the little suckers? Close up, Joe. Put the third one you do that? Yeah. Now, this is a very famous fossil because it's right at the bottom of the Cretaceous telling us that octopuses, well, the evolutionist words are, they must have evolved uh, maybe 100 million years earlier. They're soft-bodied, etc. But you can see that it's an octopus then, just as they're octopus now. Put me back on screen, Joe. Now, the two sides of this fossil, which have been written a lot about, are actually available to us, and it's a marvellous opportunity. So, Sam, if you put up the USA address where people can actually donate to, because we've got this all figured out. Glenn, you did a wonderful job. But if anyone wants to help us purchase these for our museum, it's a world-class, world-first opportunity, and it would look marvellous in, in our museum. So uh, if you want to make a donation to the huge cost of that uh, for this very, very important and first fossil, uh, it's fantastic because 
octopuses have produced their own kind. They're wonderful evidence. God's word is true. And tonight, as I reach out to young people and old people alike, uh, you just pray for us out here in Australia. It's early morning out here in Australia. So we've got quite a while to go uh, to night time. So uh, just make it a matter of prayer as we preach around this little town of Wonthaggy and go looking for dinosaur remains. Good stuff. Great stuff. Thanks for that, John. Well, uh, Craig, what have you been up to in the world of creation research? Have you got a, a, a little report for us? Yeah, I can do that now. I've been actually on holidays. Um, so I haven't done a, haven't done a great deal, um, except I go to the beach and uh, relax and do a few bush walks and live it up with the family up in New South Wales. So that, that's been great. But uh I did go on a bushwalk up in Woco National Park, which is north of Gloucester in the mid-north coast part of New South Wales and um, beautiful area. And I thought uh, listeners might be a little bit interested in the giant stinging tree that we came across on the walk. My, my daughter was absolutely uh, frightened of them, uh, touching one because they were growing up right next to the track, the young ones, and they're just as uh, painful as the adult ones. There's a picture of it there. They've got little hairs on them called trichomes that are almost like hypodermic needles. And uh, if you get stung by them, they're very, very painful. Um, and I, I did see a report that was suggesting that the, the pain or the chemicals involved are very similar to toxins found in spiders and scorpions, which is unusual for plants. Um, so, yeah, there's some questions that we've uh, yeah, got around that. If God created these things, why are they so painful to humans? Um, and that's something maybe the panel can discuss either now or sometime down the track uh, because we don't have necessarily all the answers for these sort of things. But... Um, uh, it's it's probably a, a mutated gene or, or gene regulators in there are causing that, and, and Diane might have some comments on that. But they're very painful. They grow up near the track. You can see the track going up underneath some of the the uh, trees there, and a very big leaf. Been known to kill dogs um, that maybe have run through a patch of them growing up. So. Um, just an interesting little thing that we came across on our on our walk. If you want to put me back on screen. Thanks, Greg, Joe. Yeah. Because I personally have been stung by these, but up near our Jurassic Arc, we have a tree called the Gimpy Gimpy. Um, you know, Gimpy, Gimpy is uh, Aboriginal for, for the local sort of plant, but a Gimpy Gimpy one is twice as bad. Right, so it's interesting. Aborigines have no superlative like very in their language, so they just repeat the noun twice. And Gimpy Gimpy is really, really sorry to be stung by, and it actually can do what you said kill little dogs. And, uh, and we do have to go ahead, Craig. I was just going to say the toxins even been named uh, uh, Gimpy, you know, uh, after the Gimpy uh, word as well. I'm not sure exactly what the name of the toxin, but it's it's got Gimpy in it as well. And we have the cure up in Queensland. We discovered ages ago, and I think courtesy of the Aborigines, that if you break the Kanjiboy plant and rub it over the stung area, it actually takes the sting away. And I've tried that, and it really is effective. 
So, yes, there's lots of questions out there, Diane. Give us an idea of some of the sort of suggestions that might have been made or some of the areas of research that we're looking into with these stinging things. Well, the, the term trichomes just means hairs, and plants do have hairs on their surface which just um, alter the surface properties for retaining moisture and, uh, uh, and for um, the sensation and things like that. So that they're... The, the structure is useful. Um, we know from what we've looked at in thorns that um, sometimes there is just an accumulation of substances within the, um, within the, the, the hairs um, that might have um, been overproduced. Now, we know that in biology there are some substances which are useful in small amounts but toxic in large amounts or poisonous in large amounts. So it could be, as Craig suggested, um, it could be a, a mutation where this partic these particular substances were useful in tiny amounts. And if the gene regulators um, have been damaged or have been inappropriately turned on and then left on, well, these things will just keep on accumulating. But that is an open area for research. There's lots of research that still needs to be done in terms of plant growth and, um, and, and in all biology, actually. And I think a lot of the answers will come if people look at it from a biblical biology point of view. In other words, there is design and there is degeneration, and you have to take yeah. into account yeah. both. Yeah. It's not just design. There's, there has been degeneration. We are told about that. We live in the fallen world. And I think uh, there are a lot of scientific discoveries which would fall into place if people looked at biology from that point of view, from, from that framework of thinking, actually. Uh, so so that, that's an area that, could be, uh, that needs to be researched. Some of those glandular... Yeah. Trichomes um, are useful for producing fragrant fragrances, like in lavender, oh, yes. mm. which you know helps attract pollinators, for example. So it, yes. it could be a, a you know a, a modification of or an overproduction, as you mm. say, of things like that that have then become yes. toxic. The uh, thing that comes to my mind is the English foxglove, you know, digitalis, yes. and the digitalis in just moderate amounts will kill you. But if we use it in that right tiny amount, it's a wonderful life-saving drug. So the whole of creation is afflicted by that that contrast in which one at one end mm. the amount you can take can kill you, at the other end it's wonderful for you. Yeah, I was thinking, John, as you said about the mm. uh, the plant, your gimby gimby plant. Um, we have a, a similar thing. It's not quite as bad, but with the stinging nettle, right? The famous stinging nettle mm -hmm. in the UK. And uh, ever since you're a little kid, the one thing you get taught is if you get stung by a stinging nettle, and it's, you know, it's not going to kill you, but it is still pretty painful. The one thing you go looking for is a dock leaf, right? Mm -hmm. Because if you spit on a dock leaf or get it a bit wet, you know, rub it up a little bit, rub it on the sting, it is actually pretty effective in uh, in numbing that pain. So. And also, Joe, having run a survival club, the one thing I tell kids, if it stings you, boil it, it'll eat it. You can eat it nice, nice spinach. Yeah, yeah. Well, it might be a good topic for creation conversations one day, all, all these things that sting. Because when we were down the beach at Foster, a little kid came running out of the water. He'd just been stung by a blue bottle jellyfish. Oh, and, uh, they're quite painful, the poor little fella as well. But, yeah. 
something interesting we could look at one day, perhaps. Yeah, definitely. I think that's, uh, yeah. And of course, on that note, continue to send in ideas of stuff that you want us to uh, deal with as a main topic on Creation Conversations, things that have been uh, maybe around in the news or new things like that, or topics that you'd like to see dealt with. We always appreciate suggestions, so keep them coming in. All right. Um, well, Glenn, why don't we go over to uh, to you now and you give us an update on what you've been doing, because I've got some rather interesting pictures that you've sent through. Um just recently so why don't you tell it take us through what you've been doing and last week i wasn't able to join you because i was in mississippi uh, it's, for those that don't know it's a little bit south of where i am but we were in north mississippi up on the tennessee line and you're going to show the videos we were 290 miles from the coast from the ocean and uh we were looking for sharks well we were actually looking for the teeth they left behind so I've got this picture here, Glenn, of you. Uh, uh, this is this is uh, down in the, yes. in the river. This was a picture from last summer. We took out a, a young boy who wanted to go and try to dig shark uh -huh. teeth. And so this is typically of where we go. And you can show the next one. This is just digging up the se sediment and sieving it. Um, during the wintertime, you better have waders on. It was pretty cold out there when we went last week. <laughs> And then you can right. show them just the typical pictures of what there what we go. We this is a typical day short <laughs> teeth. So it's a fun outing, and uh, you'll find all sorts of other things. Uh, you can see on one side you've got some alligator teeth in there. Uh, you will find some mosasaur teeth. You find bones, turtle bones, and so you'll find uh, terrestrial as well as the aquatic. aquatic. Uh, fossils in there mixed in but mostly shark teeth and every once in a while you find native american arrowhead which on this last trip found a really nice one so, fun outing we went there for the purpose of making a video uh for creation research that's fabulous yes um we're getting uh the whole team involved in in making these videos and things so hopefully you've been watching a lot of our shorts and a lot of the the shorter bits of content that's been going up on the uh, channel in in the last uh, few weeks we're, we're hitting some pretty uh, serious figures now viewing figures uh, which is wonderful and of course just uh, uh, the other day we hit our milestone of 3,000 subscribers and they're still climbing at a pretty speedy rate so thank you all for those who have liked and shared and uh, sent stuff around it's been absolutely fantastic to be able to see the channel grow in that way so it's been uh, really really wonderful and keep watching because we've got plenty of other uh, shorter videos to be going out um, from all sorts of creation research activities and all the whole team who's been getting involved with it which is wonderful so that's yeah, great. Craig well, had a um, wonderful. I was just going to say, Craig had a wonderful short about the um, the, the massive boulders that were that were moved yeah. by the water. I thought that was absolutely yes, fantastic. that was good. I, yeah. I, 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 but unfortunately, I had I had to quote Shrek and say, "I like that boulder. That is a nice boulder." <laughs> <laughs> but um, but yeah, no, it's it it yeah. like yeah. we're putting out some really really amazing content but the great thing about it is it's just it's just a minute long so you can just you can just sit and just swipe through it and that's the beauty of, about shorts is just really short snippets of really yeah, valuable exactly. stuff and some of them might be slightly longer you know one or two minutes but uh it's it's good to get some of the 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 volume of content out there 
which is fantastic. Um, yeah, Diane, we will come back to you later because I know we've got a, 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 a sort of a, a fairly serious update with uh, the newsletter and some of the stuff that we've put out recently. But I think it would be good time to have a, a little bit of a, a break and uh, perhaps have a look at some questions. So, Sam, maybe we've, you've got a question there from uh, one of the previous streams that we've gone out. Let's dive into a few questions for a little bit, and then we'll uh, come back uh, to talk about the newsletter that's gone out this week, some of the evidence that we've put out in that as well. Um, but just very briefly before that, actually, my very brief report. Let me just pull this up, because uh, we were just chatting about this before uh, it's a fairly thank you sam it's a fairly new fossil that we've got in in the museum collection and you might just be able to see it's absolutely chock-a-block full of fish and of course they're very similar type of fish to the kind of things you'd get in like the green river formation the major difference is number one the color is completely wrong but number two if i hold it just slightly at an angle like this can you see how knobbly this is see the green river formation tends to be extremely flat this is just bumpy and lumpy and all over the place and you actually have fish if we can see perhaps on this one you see how the fish is bent completely over it's uh, actually bent along with the contours of this fossil you can see how just how bendy it is as it goes so it's a pretty spectacular piece and we're not 100 sure where it comes from but uh, having traveled all over the world um john and i were having a bit of a chat about this earlier about where we're pretty sure it comes from so we'll uh, go and get that confirmed but john where do we think this is from uh, well speaking as a scotsman i i believe it's a scottish rock it's from north from north of Edinburgh. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. It's uh, it certainly seems to fit the bill, so we'll be taking it up there to confirm it. But it's uh, still a pretty spectacular and certainly a catastrophic dump, mm -hmm. because you just see the, the the sheer volume of fossils and stuff that you've got in that. And also, very pleased to announce that this, in fact, today, even this week, today, these arrived. Uh, John, what's this? Okay, a young couple who met at a camp we ran last year decided to. Uh, uh, get hitched together, we get married before the Lord, and they asked yours truly to be the preacher. So last weekend I came down to Victoria. We had a wonderful wedding, and uh, I determined that, well, this is a, a really good message, so let's turn it into a series of devotionals. So you might not know it, but Jewish weddings used to go on for seven days from the start, and, of course, that's enough to bankrupt any dad these days, so we don't tend to do seven-day weddings. But it's a seven-day series of devotionals about God inventing marriage and what the what the where all the, the basics for it come from. And of course, we added one thing that's going to get into the next section because in the first wedding, think of it: the father bought his daughter and gave it to the man. We're talking about Adam and Eve and God and the witnesses with the Son and the Holy Spirit and all the angels sang in acclamation to this wonderful thing. All the angels sang in joy, the scripture says. That would have been one of their real joys. So insights like that that the Lord has given us, you'll be blessed by. It's now available in England, Joe. And it's just available in Australia too. So weddings only one yep. week, books fresh off the presses. So... Um, so yeah, they they literally arrived today, so they're available. They're up online at thecreationresearchstore.com. So go ahead and publish them. They're available in Australia as well. Uh, you can order them in the UK to be sent over to the states, but we'll uh, probably be trying to get um, 
a bulk load of them over to the States at some point so you can purchase them. And just pray that uh, we'll be able to come over and sort out all that kind of stuff in the States because it looks like we're uh, finally being let back in completely. All stuff is being dropped from the 11th is what we understand. So praise the Lord, the 11th of May. So praise the Lord for that. Pray that we can get into the States and we can do some ministry there and we can actually bring some of these with us as well. So um, praise the Lord for all of that. Well, that's my little report there. Um, just very, very brief. But anyway, um, let's go on to some questions, Sam. Let's have a look and see what we've got. Right, just excuse then. me, everybody. I just have to go and check on my lovely wife. I'll be back in a moment. No worries. Uh, right. Okay. So this is a, this is a, a, a relates to we've been talking about the shorts and uh, those of our um, regular viewers will know that um we've talked about this before um but this comes in from doki doki uh who says how long did it take for the teddy bear to become stone it's a very interesting okay. question well number one it depends on which teddy bear you're talking about because we have two of them in the collection uh, and number three you have to understand that they haven't become stone in the truest sense of the word so number one we have two teddy bears we have one from the color vivari which is in the czech republic and we have one which is from mother shipton's which is in yorkshire both of them are very famous places the color vivari ones are, are most famous for the fossil paper roses that you get right um and then you've got the mother shipton ones which are most famous for their teddy bears because this is what they commercially produce right both of them it's a almost identical process you get the soft squidgy teddy bear or you get the paper rose you hang it underneath the water and the water the fountains or the the drips right they are full of minerals uh, mostly a calcium carbonate based mineral whether that's aragonite or limestone or so on and so forth and you'll find it drips in it soaks up right into the soft squidgy teddy bear and the water comes out leaving some of the minerals behind and over a period of time that will end up completely permineralizing that teddy bear or paper rose now that is different to turn to stone i mean it is in its one sense yes it has you know once it was soft and squidgy now it's hard as rock right but if you really want to get technical and you do sometimes need to get technical because if you call this a fossil, the evolutionists will say, sorry, no, a fossil has to be older than 10,000 years. Mm -hmm. So you sometimes have to step up a little bit and actually break down what processes are going on here. You see, petrification is turned to stone. That's what happens when you get the petrified trees, right? They're trees that have turned to stone. Permineralization is something different. The actual original material is often still there. So dinosaur bones are permineralized. The dinosaur bone is still there. It's just extremely porous. And so when it's been buried in sediment, the minerals have impregnated it. They've permeated it, right? Mm. And they have completely encased and entrapped and infilled it with minerals. But the original bone is still there. So you have a permineralized fossil. That's the process by which that dinosaur bone has been preserved. The same process happens when you find these, you know, petrifying wells and the like. What you'll end up with is a teddy bear, which is very porous, right? It's full of stuff and fluff, and the minerals will have gone down into it. They will have permeated it, entrapped it, encased it in minerals, so you have a permineralized teddy bear. 
or a permineralized paper rose or a permineralized uh, you know nest we have examples of all of these in the museum collection so yes in one sense you can legitimately call them fossils because they have exactly the same process as the fossils that are supposed to be millions of years old but they are good evidence of a process and they're good evidence that it is a process that is the key to fossilizing and actually entrapping and preserving these creatures and these things. Now, when it comes to time uh, or a question of time, because remember the key thing isn't time, it's process. But when it comes to time, you'll find the Colavivari ones, because they are hot mineral springs, they permeate and they evaporate a lot quicker, right? As opposed to the freezing cold Yorkshire. So you'll find that the stuff in the Colavivari permineralizes in approximately two weeks you'll find that the yorkshire bears take between two to three months so it's a slightly longer process with the teddy bears but i highly suspect that has more to do with the fact that you've got these hot volcanic springs in the color as opposed to the freezing cold river that bubbles out of the cliff in uh, the yorkshire any comments from the teams now even in australia where we do an artificial one uh, and we sit the teddy bears underneath our um, stalactite machine. Within a few weeks, the outside is hard. Within a few months, it's it's rock solid. So it doesn't take yeah. a huge amount of time in the warm weather where we can evaporate fairly fast. So when Joseph's talking about petrification, again, be careful how you use that. But remember, even the dinosaur bones, as I think Joe's already mentioned, the outside is the original bone. Yeah. So the bone has become the fossil. The bone isn't petrified at all in the normal sense because it's already stone when it's actually made. And, in fact, Diane, you might want to comment on, on bones and, and the state that they arrive in to even become a fossil because you have some very good points about those channels that go through the bone that enable the liquid to come in afterwards. Yes, well, even though bone is hard, yes, it does have living bone actually has minerals in it. That's why it's hard. Uh, but within that, there are cells because living bone is a dynamic living tissue that's constantly being remodeled in, inside your body. So it does have to have a blood supply and it does have to have a supply of nutrients uh, for the cells that actually live inside it. So even in bone that looks what's called compact bone, that's the solid bone around the outside of bones that looks like sort of one completely solid rock. If you look at that under a microscope, it's full of tiny holes and there will be a cell in each one of those tiny holes. And between those holes, you've got tiny little uh, channels where uh, tissue fluids and nutrients and dissolved gases, uh, oxygen, carbon dioxide can flow in and out of those cells. So you've got microscopic channels and small holes within the bone already there. Mm -hmm. So that if the bone is buried and you have water moving through the, um, the soil or sediment or whatever it's buried in, the water containing minerals can flow through um, those channels can be deposited within those holes and so those minerals will be deposited and the bone is actually um, heavier because it now has more minerals than what it started out with and we've actually done that at Jurassic Arc we've buried some bones they're dead bones and uh, they have absorbed more minerals simply because the uh, there's water with minerals in the dirt the soil that they've been buried in uh, and uh, 
they have now become, they have extra minerals in them that they didn't have before when we buried them. And that's all part of the same process. Joe, Glad you're not you burying live bones. Sorry, sorry, Craig. Joe, you have a copy of uh, the new tights and mites handy at all? Um, not on me, no. I'd have to run downstairs, yeah. but they okay. are available in the UK to, uh, to purchase. Sam, Sam put up our, our website in general because the new edition, we ran out of the old edition, which is good news, but the new edition of Tights, Mites and Falsifieds actually has that experiment in with all the pictures and the chemical tests to prove that it really was bone plus mineral, right? Yeah. Provably iron in this case. So uh, we checked with the professors as to what was sort of what we call kitchen chemistry. Anybody could do, and you could do it on your own bone if you bury it, et cetera. And so it's a wonderful book with all the actual evidence at a level everybody can understand available in England and in Australia, tights, mites and falsifieds from creationresearch.net. Yeah, good stuff. Perfect. All right, let's have another question, Sam. That was a good question, that. Oh, all right, then. Off the back of that. Uh, I've, uh, I've had a really interesting um, uh, question from George Bond here, hmm. um, which has I don't think it's been asked before. Um, but I will. Uh, we have to send a, a thanks to George because he sent us uh, twenty Aussie buckaroos. Uh, John, can you send us some of that increase uh, in the sunshine, please? I don't know. They should have some up there. I've got none down here in Victoria. I'm going back <laughs> home again. But to answer George's question, which is about the uh, permafrost, is this a different kind of fossil? Good question, George. Um, I don't know how many of you other guys have wandered through the snow and ice. In northern Canada or Alaska, I certainly have. I remember the first time I fell through the ice, and I don't want there to be a second time. It's a very, very awful feeling. Um, you, you sort of lose total control because your limbs go numb. Really, I couldn't believe how quickly I lost all feeling in my, my lower legs as they went through the, the ice. But there are plenty of fossils uh, of things like, you know, the mammoths and, and those sort of mastodons. With the mastodons, you often find just the bones. So they qualify as normal people's thoughts about a fossil. But if you find the fossil in which the flesh is sort of almost mummified, is that still a fossil? Well, remember what the real definition is? The definition used in pragmatic circles in science is it can't be a fossil unless it's older than 10,000 years. So that's the definition they go by because apart from that, the fossil is just frozen meat, right? And I remember reading the first book by the explorers who found these fossils, frozen fossils, and they were adamant they ate it, their dogs ate it. Uh, it had obviously been snapped frozen. You don't want to let it melt because it, it'll really go off pretty fast. And if you go up to Coal River, so for example, uh, where they've been looking for fossil dinosaurs, many of the places up there really stink because the, the place has melted and the meat has, has gone rotten. But apart from that, their only definition of fossil there is it older than 10,000 years. And remember, the reason they picked that was had nothing to do with science. It had to do with Charles Lyell, who was out to get rid of biblical dating. The biblical chronology was important because it links Adam with Jesus, with you and I. And that figure at most... You know, nobody, nobody's ever been able to demonstrate you can take it back more than 10,000 years uh, unless you want to fudge. J 
Joseph, I see you've got a bone there. You have something to say about it? Yeah, this is one of those permafrost fossils, right, from a, from a, a mammoth. And uh, just to sort of show you the difference, you might just be able to see that's the end of the bone and see if we can get it into any, any more focus. It's not really wanting to focus, is it? Let's try and bring it in even closer. There we go. That's a little bit. Yeah, more. That's, that's better. Yes. Yeah. So you can see that it is it is essentially bone, right? There's no permineralization in the same sense. Um, it's not completely infilled. There's still all of that honeycomb structure. It's a little weightier because being trapped in the mud, some of the mud and the sediment has kind of uh, you know impregnated it a little bit, uh, especially as it will have gotten waterlogged. And the water would have been carrying silt and stuff like that. But it's not permineralized in the same way that the dinosaur bones are. It's not petrified because it's still the bone. It hasn't turned to stone. It hasn't all been altered chemically. It's not carbonized or anything like that. But it's still preserved. Um, it's still preserved better than if it had been lying around, you know, in, in, in you know, England or in the countryside or in the woods or something where creatures can come and break it down and slowly begin to destroy it. Um, so it's it's still a pretty nice fossil. You can use the fossil as a loose term uh, because it is preserved, but it's not in the same way that you'd think about uh, some of the other big fossils and stuff like that. Joe, nice um, you and I have both explored from the mouth of the, the Thames uh, north of there. I found quite a few fossils of deer antlers and things like that. Are they original stuff that's been in the permafrost that's been uh, been thawed out? Okay, so there. yeah, you do get a lot of stuff around there, particularly up on the Norfolk coast, um, mm. and most of that stuff comes out of one of two places. There's a, um, a, a place near West Runton uh, and near Cromer, if you've heard of the famous sort of seaside resort of Cromer, uh, and you've got the West Runton Freshwater Riverbed, which is a peat bed. It's uh, about probably two to three metres thick. Uh, it covers a sort of fairly small area around the North Norfolk coast, and it's thick. It's peat, right? It smells. It's kind of full of all uh, plant material but you get a lot of these fossils out of there and they're regarded as sub-permineralized because they're buried in peat it's not really a rock it's more of a mud and you end up with these sort of fossils which are stained because of the peat they're a little bit heavier because as the, they've become waterlogged some of that silt and sediment has gone into them but they're still effectively fresh bone and that gets washed out of this deposit and washed around in the sea and dumped back out on the beach and on the foreshore where you can go and actually dig them up and collect them uh, the other thing which you can also go and find is that all of these um all of the north sea area we know used to be land okay we're talking about a time between uh, Noah's flood, uh, sort of after Noah's flood, after the Tower of Babel, um, but before the Romans got there, really, uh, because that's in our first documentation of having to go across the sea to actually get to Britannia or to the island as it is today. And we have records of it being very marshy around where London now is, around where Norfolk now is, and so on and so forth. But this huge area, which was known as Doggerland, which was part of the North Sea, basically ended up 
getting flooded, but the evidence shows that it was a large grassland area where you had enormous amounts of creatures living and human settlements. You have human settlements found at the bottom of the sea, loads of stone tools that get washed out of it, and so on and so forth, right? So you'll find that all these creatures that got effectively trapped, probably by melting ice and an ice dam breaking and sort of flooding where the North Sea currently is, you have ended up with this huge amount of these fossils which can get washed in but it's the same thing they're buried in silt they're buried in sort of a mud sediment as opposed to being buried in a global deposit which fully permineralizes them sandy i see you've asked again where did joe say these fossils were both he and i have wandered up and down the norfolk coast that's one of the easiest places to find them uh, so uh, you'll be able to go up there easily don't need any guides or if you know some fishermen, ask them what they've caught in their nets lately. If they're fishing out on the Dogger Banks, you'll find that is, is a, a really good source of these. And further south, of course, you get dragon bones, uh, which is what the fishermen call them as they dredge up dinosaurs from the Jurassic Coast. Yeah. Definitely, yeah. It's sort of mainly all around the North Norfolk coast. That's the, the best place to go looking for them. So, John, I've got a quick question. When you fell through the ice, did that make you a living fossil? Uh, only just living. <laughs> it re really did. I was grateful to not be alone that day. But I was on. I was looking for coal, and there was a coal seam exposed in the top of the cliff. And of course, I had my eyes up there, and I was walking horizontally, and I didn't actually spot that the ice was getting thinner. So don't make the same mistake. You end up not just a coal geologist, but a very cold geologist as well. Good stuff. All right, maybe some more. Uh, let's have another question, Sam. All right then. Uh, so this one, this isn't this isn't more of a question. This is a statement that was given, and I thought it might be good to address it. Um, this came in from sure. Ken uh, Wolgmuth. Uh, it says, <laughs> "Hello, Christian brothers and sister. I'm a Christ follower, and he guided me into studying chemistry slash geochemistry. The Earth's age was reported in 1956 as 4.55 billion years, and this still stands." <laughs> Repeat the question again, please, Sam. Well, it's, it's more of a statement, but we're looking for more comments on it. Yeah. Um, it said, hello, Christian brothers and sister. I'm a Christ follower, and he guided me into studying chemistry and geochemistry. The Earth's age was reported in 1956 as 4.55 billion years, and this still stands. Uh, I'll throw in a starter. As a geologist who had to date rocks using radioactive methods, I also discovered that the age of the Earth has doubled every 20 years for the past two centuries, and it's currently at the figure that's sort of accepted, except in the celestial sphere where it's changed many times in the past 40 or 50 years. Like, I remember the universe being 20 billion years old, then 10 billion years old, one committee later, meeting later it was 15 billion years old then the nasa satellite it was 13 billion years old so don't treat these as facts likewise if you ask any geologist how many times they've dated the earth dated the rocks most geologists have never dated a single rock in their entire career because it doesn't pay there's no money to be made unless you own the dating laboratory from dating rocks it doesn't help you one bit so most geologists despite their dogmatism on this have absolutely no experience whatsoever 
likewise textbook writers. They have no experience or real knowledge uh, or university professors. It's outside their normal range of things. So if you go by what we've said, you can probably predict in the next 20 or 30 years, the age of the earth will triple, double or whatever again. You just wait long enough. Joe, you got any comments on that or um, anybody else? I think also it's worth pointing out what, um, uh, you all know the, 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 the quote, John, but the, the, the guy who, uh, the astronomer who said, basically, we, I believe that the, the sun is sort of four and a half, five billion years old, and yet there isn't really anything in modern science that would contradict a belief in 6,000 years old, Archbishop James Usher's belief in 6,000 years old. It has more to do with how you interpret the data. I mean, the Earth's age was reported as being 4.55 billion years old. Yet if you take a step back and you actually look at the whole data, um, you find that there isn't really anything, if you interpret it a different way, to have an issue with interpreting it as a much, much younger Earth. Ultimately, the authority should be on Scripture and not on the way that man interprets the world around him. Also, in, in science, we have to validate the, the methods. And these methods of radiometric dating have never been validated against known rocks. When they've been tested against the age of known rock ages, mm -hmm. you know, 30-year-old rocks give the ages of millions of years. Yeah. Uh, so how can we trust it if we can't trust it against known rock ages? That's yeah. very good, good point, uh, mate. And, and and the thing that really struck me after we did our, our um, you know, our area of dating rocks was that we had ten different students, one rock, ten different pieces. We all got ten different ages, right? And then the question was never raised, which you needed to raise with the professor: How long would you have to watch this rock? How long would you have to measure this rock in order to know? that the so-called half-life of 4.6 million years for uranium, lead, etc., actually was the actual real half-life because we never have dated it for that long. So there is no really consistent um, time span against which you can measure it. No matter how much you believe in the system, it's still a belief system. Uh, scripture is the observations of the God who was there. Make sure you keep that in perspective, Ken point well let's have one more question sam before we move on to our uh, next section which we'll we'll talk a bit about the newsletter that's gone out recently so let's have one more question sure uh this one comes in from sandy c so thank you for for this sandy um regarding polystrate trees evolutionists say they're all from local flooding can you explain again why that is incorrect you want me to start with that one joe uh you can do i was thinking um Derek Ages quote about the Carboniferous, but uh, go for it. Well, it's, it's really the same answer. So I'll let you say, give that quote, then I'll take over. Well, it was uh, Professor Derek Ager who, as John will tell you, is uh, one of the few honest evolutionists who actually went out there and actually dug up and saw the evidence for himself. 
And he made the point about the Carboniferous, and you'll find most of these polystrate trees, not exclusively, but most of these polystrate trees, particularly the big lycopods, are from the Carboniferous. Um, we call them Carboniferous because they're full of carbon. It's where you get all the coal. Uh, Australians call them Carboniferous because we're good friends of the Australians. Uh, the Americans call them Pennsylvanian and Mississippian because they wouldn't possibly go with the English naming of things. But it's all the same rock layers, right? And you'll find that it was Derek Ager who first really pointed out the fact that an enormous amount of the Earth's surface is covered in these same Carboniferous rocks, right? A ridiculous amount of degrees of the Earth's surface. And he said even closing the Atlantic by a mere 40 degrees really doesn't do much for explaining this rather remarkable phenomena. The fact that no matter where you go on the Earth, you can trace them all the way down from Canada... Nova Scotia, down into Mississippi, down into t Tennessee, where we've gone and dug. You can trace them across. We've dug up polystrate trees from the Carboniferous here in the UK. You go down into the caves. They're all still there, right? You can trace them across France. You can trace them across Asia. And they even turn up over in Australia as well. So it's an enormous deposit. It really is a global deposit. And they're all containing these trees. Now, if you have all of these trees, which are clearly buried in flooding, and it's in a deposit which goes all around the world, you only are left to conclude that it's a worldwide flood. So that's in a nutshell. But John, over to you. Okay, at the pragmatic level then, and I think I took you, Joe, on a field trip as we were looking through the Permian on the East Coast, Permian named after Perm in Russia, invented by Charles Lyell, um, sent there to Russia by the king because the Tsar was his cousin. You know, there's a really in-house thing about geology and naming. But anyway, there was a real squabble in Australia for two reasons. One is the whole of the eastern seaboard coal seams. Um, the first professor, Edgeworth David, said they showed all the evidence of being a flood deposit because there were many polystrate trees and the trees were largely pine trees on the coastal exposures, but there was no beds of pine, of pine debris that these trees grew here where's all the debris that comes from a pine forest that's been rapidly buried in a volcanic eruption and he made a good point that's been absolutely totally ignored deliberately right and then they started finding polystrate trees that went through multiple coal layers a point which is also deliberately ignored and a point which i've been and we've filmed and we've gone to check and dig out to to show that they are still there but when i took joe up towards the mountains, right, the coal seams go out to the west of Sydney and you can go and see where the initial real squabble was. Initially, they didn't know if these were Permian or Carboniferous. They favoured Carboniferous because that's where the coal seams were in, in England, right? And it nearly went that way as a labelling system because as you get up towards Lithgow, you find the same trees that you see in the USA, that you see in Canada, Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, etc. that you see all the way across England and across Europe, and it adds to Derek Age's picture. Now, sometimes you might be surprised, but where are you going to put um, a, a category of rocks uh, in what classification? Depends on how many geologists have been there, who's seen it, and what vote power you have in the, in the fraternity. But uh, you see them in Australia, and then many times... They are leaning over and they are flowing with the sediment and they don't have roots, right? And that's the characteristic of so many of these polystrate trees that go from 
um, down near uh, Georgia, right, all the way up the east coast of America, along the uh, western side of the Appalachians there, and sometimes the eastern side, right up through Pennsylvania, hence the word Pennsylvanian, where they dug them up in the coal seams uh, in, the, in the 1800s, across Canada and heading right across to England. It's all the same bed, and that brings it to the point that Joe's brought out. Now, it's not just Derek Ager who has been to see these. He's one of my heroes, to be honest. So I've made sure that I've been down to Newcastle in Alabama. Why? Because it was called Newcastle after Newcastle, England, where they had the same coal. And I've been to all of these places. I've photographed. I would have the world's biggest collection, even bigger than Derek Ager's, right? Uh, I've, I've photographed all of these, and they are actually the same sort of phenomena. Derek Ager is 100% right. It's an unbelievably big phenomena. And right in the middle of Manchester, uh, on, in the middle of the moors, I mean, you will find the classic example that was first categorised as a flood-deposited tree, right? And I, we, we will stick by that. It's a brilliant description of one of the first trees that was really studied in detail, layer after layer, multiple, multiple bands and all different stuff in it. It could never have grown there. It's not a buried forest. So stick with Derek Ager. He's a practical geologist, even though he got it right and wrong in terms of age or things like that. And even though he sadly doesn't like us or didn't like us, he's dead now. He will have been forced to change his mind by the time he stands before the Lord. But in reality, he made some really good practical observations about the size of these polystrate things, and they aren't real forests at all. Perfect. Great stuff. Thanks for that, John. Good question. So far, keep your questions coming in uh, because we will return very shortly to Q&A. But for now, let's have a little bit of a break again and uh, move on to the newsletter updates, which, of course, uh, Dr. Diane Egu is in charge of not only pulling together all of our newsletter stuff, but also looking after the Ask John Mackay site. And... Um, getting lots of collaborators to write in answers to questions and so on and so forth. And we actually are going to be uh, featuring the Ask John Mackay site this evening uh, for a little bit of an update. But, Diane, how about we go over to you now for a little bit about the newsletter and then me and John will jump in when we get on to our Ask John Mackay item. So over to you. Yes, we did send out a newsletter uh, this week. Uh, we had a bit of a break over the Christmas and New Year period, but uh, so we've sent out our first newsletter for uh, for this year, and uh, it's got some uh, really good encouraging things about uh, the uh, museums that are now opening up around the world because uh, the world has reopened, as it were. People are now able to travel and people are able to visit places and have live meetings and come and see the evidence for themselves. Um, so in our banner here, we've got... Uh, a photo from the UK Museum, we'll come back to that later. A uh, photo from Jurassic Ark, which is now um, open for anyone to come and visit. Uh, so please do that. This is the only outdoor museum uh, in Australia, certainly. Uh, you can come and visit and see the evidence of God's handiwork in the world in both creation and judgment. And uh, we've also got uh, a bit in the newsletter about uh, the Tasmanian Museum, which Craig looks after. And uh, this is a, a visit from a school group who came and saw the, the evidence for themselves. 
Um, so do come and do that down in Tasmania. It's a fabulous museum. There's been some uh, new things added to it. And also Craig and his colleagues go out and collect rocks from Tasmania. So there's local evidence and uh, there's evidence from other places as well. Um, and uh, one of our colleagues in uh, Canada also has a museum which has now been able to reopen. So if you uh, live in Canada, you can go and see um, Martin Legamati and his colleagues' um, museum, which has some fascinating stuff in it. So you can read about those things in the newsletter. It's uh, good to have um, this good news. But there is um, one lot of uh, rather sad news uh, that uh, we do actually have to report on. And uh, that is, um, let's see if we can just get to the next slide here. Um, this is a review of a book called Creation Unfolding. Um, now, there's a bit of history behind this. So perhaps if we can just go back to us and then we'll go back to that slide uh, and explain it. Uh, this was a book that was released in uh, 2020 and uh, by uh, a man called Ken Colson called Creation Unfolding, which was presenting an apparently new idea about uh, how God created during that first creation week. And so naturally we were asked about it because everyone knows that that's our thing. We talk about creation a lot and local people in Australia asked us about it. So we looked through it and we wrote a review and uh, then uh, a few things have happened since then. And maybe John, you could take up the story from, uh, from there. Sure. sure. Um I've never been uh, one who refused to uh, uh, not call something what it is. Um, I sometimes can even do it nicely. Uh, it's antagonistic. Uh, I'm a Mackay, though, and, uh, you know, our motto is strong of arm and second to none. It sort of gives you an idea as to why they put the Scots people in the Scots guards to protect the Queen. Most of us are tall, big, and sometimes obnoxious. But... Uh, with this book, we were asked by, first of all, members in my own church and then in associated churches and then in a wider circle around the globe, including creation groups. Now, we are not the only people to do reviews of this because you'll find Answers in Genesis has just joined us in doing reviews and uh, we're encouraged by what they've said. It's pretty similar to where we're going because we've done a, a lot longer research on this and uh, we've published a report and uh, we were asked to sort of uh, uh, meet with the people involved. We did so. Uh, it was very evident. We were not too popular, eh, Diane? <laughs> we certainly weren't. Um, we certainly weren't. Yeah. And we said we'd remove our, our content and then reevaluate it. That's the only fair and Christian thing to do. So we did that. And we have to report the one reason we responded with this, this um, publication again is that we could not, apart from minor little top topographical errors or that, find any reason to withdraw anything we've said. And we've gone on to further expand. Uh, in fact, Joe, you got involved in writing some of this. So what did. did you add to the original reports? Okay, so I got involved for, for two reasons. Number one, to show that this is a a bigger issue than just a, a single church issue, right? Um, it's uh, something that is 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 wide-reaching and there are multiple issues with. And so uh, John first sort of 
I first sort of came across this book by Ken Colson through the review that John and Diane did. And uh, I mean, I trust John and Diane, but sometimes I like to check things out for myself, right? Rather than just take their own words for it. That's something you can blame John for because he trained me to do that. So yes, I ordered my own copy of the book. Um, and uh, I'm sure many of those royalties went to Ken himself. And we read through the book and I sort of dealt through it quite carefully because I wanted to actually see what the book said for itself. And so when it came on to this need for a second review and a much more in-depth review, because the second review is, is significantly longer than the first one, right? One of the things that had happened in that original review was um, they'd come back and said, well, we didn't actually mean that, right? You're misrepresenting us uh, from what you've actually from what I actually said. And one of the, those particular things is that in the original review, um, it had been evident, or it was claimed that it had been evident that Ken was using the same uniformitarian, naturalistic, naturalistic lionial thinking, right, which led to then Darwinism and the old earth, the idea that the present is the key to the past. And one of the arguments that they came back with was, no, this, um, uh, you know, definition of naturalistic differs from the standard secular understanding of the world and really naturalistic is the as they claimed as Ken claimed refers to rhythms of regularity in nature now that's an actual quote from the book right he believes that it's rhythms of regularity in nature that God used to create and so one of the things that I did I didn't just bring some geological knowledge because there's a whole issue with stromatolites and stuff like this right and I've got extensive geological knowledge in these as well as John's who we were able to work together with that and I added a, a number of different things throughout the book but in particular we dove through the book and the bit which I contributed was the multiple references to uniformitarianism that are clearly seen throughout the book so and you'll find that as you as you read it the definition which the book uses of naturalistic is is quite similar to the claims that i'd come across from theistic evolutionists right um most famously perhaps dennis alexander who were uh, as essentially written in his book creation or evolution do we have to choose that creation of the world came about by a naturalistic process a natural process which was initiated by a supernatural power and so you'll find that this term rhythm of regularity which ken uses in his book really does point towards a uniformitarianistic naturalistic philosophy and you'll find this all throughout the book so i've got a few of the quotes which you can read through the actual review itself but one of the things that he says on page six to seven he says by estimating the current volume of earth's continental rocks and then extrapolating back at the current rate at which these rocks are being formed one can easily approximate a time frame for the earth's formation in the millions or billions of years and it's true if you take the present day processes and extrapolate them backwards you will get a age of millions of years every single time but if you've been watching creation conversations and you've been watching the stuff we've done with creation research the one thing that you'll know is we consistently and deliberately warn you against that because it's that very philosophy the present being the key to the past that led on to an age of the old earth in the first place and then led on to Darwinism. And the whole underpinning philosophy underneath it is one that is anti-God. Um, it's one that's that's against God as a creator. It's one that's against God as judge and as well as against God 
as saviour. Uh, he continues in other places, so page 25, current processes are all that's required to perceive this planet was not formed in a single day, week, year, or even a thousand years. Um, and he, he sympathises with the old Earth creationists, so on page 25 he says the Earth does seem to have a long history associated with it, as does the universe. In page 40 he says at today's rate it would take tens or hundreds of years for the finest of those sediments to settle out of the water column. And there's plenty of other quotes, so check out the review read his book for yourself don't just trust us but it really is a pushing of naturalistic regardless of whether he wants it to mean the same thing or not it is the same process it is the same principle that people like charles lyell and darwin were pushing the present is the key to the past therefore the earth must be billions of years old or you need to invoke supernatural processes to speed up the billions of years into just a few thousand years. And that's essentially what he's arguing for. John, back to you. Okay, I'll say one thing, then Diane can come in. The thing that sort of attracted us in a negative way was the sort of concept is supernatural formative processes where when God said that the earth bring forth plants, uh, it wasn't that they just appeared on, on day three, God had already put seeds in the ground. And when he spoke, what happened was they naturally speeded up their uh, their um, development. Now, Diane, this is where you came in because we were discussing the relationship of what's needed on planet Earth for actually plants to grow and things like that. So talk about the issues that concern you. Yes, well, uh, in, in the book, uh, there's a comment that if we were to look at the third day of creation, and the author does assert, you know, I believe in six days of creation, if we were to look at the third day of creation when the plants were created, it would be like watching one of those time-lapse videos of plants growing. Now, I actually love watching those. I, I think that's just wonderful, uh, seeing those growth processes speeded up that you, uh, that you can't go uh, and watch, you know, like the old saying, watching grass grow. Um, but uh, which it's a nice concept, but it doesn't work. Now, as you've heard us say many, many times uh, on creation conversations and in, in our media, nothing in biology works in isolation. So plants do not live and grow and develop by themselves. Now, one of the things that we are told about the plants that God made is that he made plants, uh, including things like fruit trees with fruit and seeds in them. Now, what does it take to get a plant to produce fruit and seeds? Well, first of all, it has to flower and it has to be pollinated and then it has to develop seeds and then the seeds have to be dispersed by, by seed dispersers. So this is one of the things we've talked about quite a few times on Creation Conversations, that um, plants and animals work together. God made whole functioning ecosystems but if we were to just look at the third day of creation and say, well, that's how we got to the plants that God specifically says had fruit and seeds in them, that is not going to work simply by speeding up all of the processes because the pollinators, which are animals and birds and insects, weren't made until the fifth and sixth days of creation. So this is one of those nice ideas where you try and combine the uh, what the Bible says with what the standard scientific or uh, worldview is, and it just doesn't work. You do have to choose 
in spite of what Dennis Alexander has written, creation or evolution. We do have to choose. And so we choose God's word. And so even though um, the author of this book, Ken Coulson, insists that he's choosing God's word, when he writes things like that, he's not. He is choosing the world's point of view and trying to squeeze that in to the Bible. But uh, it, it can't be done. It doesn't work scientifically and it doesn't work biblically either. Okay, just to add one more comment and then we'll go back to our usual Q&A because we'll probably do a whole program on the complete review, but go to creationresearch.net, look up uh, Ask John Mackay and look at the yes. whole question that Diane's got mm. filed there and we'll come back to that reference one more time before we go. You see, the whole aim, and you can understand Ken's idea, it's to appeal to the old earthers and all those who think there is evidence mm. by showing them a faster way to explain away the evidence, right? And I say explain away because you've just heard from Diane, it actually doesn't work. I mean, my contribution to the biological section is when you have orchids, you can't just have an orchid that has flowers because the flowers actually, when they germinate, they'll need fungi because the fungi actually germinates the seed. And you think, man, this is so complicated unless there was a God who said, let the plants appear with fruit and seeds all on the third day. This is not going to happen just with supernatural, super fast formative processes. It needs the same God who turned water into wine and made bread instantly. I don't think it was gluten-free, by the way, back then. We weren't degenerate enough to appreciate gluten-free or even need it. But the place where this all comes unstuck is the reliance on the geologic column and the reliance, its reliance on the basic inherent principles of both Lyell and Steno. Now, I know I annoy many Christian geologists by this, but I will insist on it and insist on it and insist on it. John Ray, way back, just after Steno, John Ray was one of the guys who helped Linnaeus with the classification system. Steno had basically given three or four principles, depending on how you add them up. The bottom layer got there first. The, the next layer got there one after the other, right? The layers were laid down horizontally, right? And so you've got these concepts built into the, you know, the old idea where you shake up a glass of water and the rocks settle at the bottom, then the sand, then the mud. That's a Steno idea. And as we love to tell people, the world is not a glass of mud and sand. It doesn't shake up and down. It flows sideways. And way back in the early days, John Ray made a very interesting observation. He said, if Nicholas Steno is correct, bottom layer got there first, then the next layer, if they were laid down horizontally, then the world is far older than Nicholas Steno or the Bible would allow. Nicholas Steno believed in a young earth. Nicholas Steno believed in Noah's flood. But it's not Nicholas Steno beliefs we're talking about. It's his ideas on how the rock layers got there, which led Charles Lyell and then Charles Darwin millions and millions of years. And while Steno and um, Coulson and all of his colleagues stick to that, they will end up with a view. It may be disguised as the Bible, but in the end it becomes the undoing of biblical authority, right? That's what we want. We put a warning in the article, didn't we, Diane, that that's what this article will achieve, just as it did in Lyell's day, just as it did even in Steno's day. So be cautious. Get yourself a copy. It's available from Amazon. has been available for years before we did a public review of it. So and no one can ask 
you know, you should have kept this review quiet and within Christian circles. It was already way too public for that. So we don't mind being um, thrown rocks at when we're right, particularly, and we'd encourage you to read the review. What's the address again, Sam? Creationresearch.net, ask John McKay. Whatever it is, can you put that up, mate? Well, well if you can put my slide back up, it, it, it's there. Oh, right, um, good. Yes. Uh, if you if you got our newsletter, um, it has direct links to the two PDF documents, the original review and the um, the, the newer one, the the further review. If you didn't get the newsletter, if you just go to the Ask John Mackay site and go to this question here, and there are links to those two PDF documents in that question. Uh, and so I, yes. And may I add a few things? You're talking about this rapid growth on day three. I studied yes. solute transport and water mm. transport. And just the thought of the rates that it would have to be to supply the nutrients and the water to the roots. And then it's a microbial process that transforms, yes. transforms those into plant available nutrients. The microbial processes would have to be sped up. It, it just blows the, the mind, the, the limited yeah. view of that concept. And then I think, Diane, you mentioned that many of the fruit trees and, and bushes don't produce for several years, right? That's right, yes. Yes, so, uh, yeah, it, it doesn't work scientifically. It doesn't work biblically. Uh, no. So, so um, it, it's a nonsense, really. It's, it's a yeah. fantasy. In fact, to add a little bit of information, there's a whole group out there now, now called New Creationists who are actually trying to push uh, an old earth, young earth concept all mixed up together, and their authority is science. If they claim to be Christians, their first authority should be the word of God, and I hate yeah. to say it, but they're getting further and further away from having the Bible as their authority. Uh, won't retract that one bit, will we, guys? And girl. No, no. <laughs> no, it stands. We've our two reviews are up there for everyone to read. Uh, and we have thoroughly um, gone through our original review. We stand by it, so that has just gone straight back up there in its original state. And then there's a, a further review that you can read as well. Yeah, they're all there. also go to uh, AIG and have a look at their click on as well. Yeah, they're putting out a whole series on this. So um, I think it's also worth mentioning, John, maybe just before we move on, that what we have seen as the perhaps <laughs> fundamental issue in all of this is that of a promotion of fideism, which is the idea that God has built ambiguity into his creation uh, so that we wouldn't recognize him as creator. We wouldn't recognize him as supreme being. Uh, and so he makes the earth look old. He makes the world look mature so that we don't automatically recognize that he created as he said he did. And so we have to come to him by faith in spite of evidence otherwise. That's essentially the argument. So it really does fly in the face of scriptures like Romans one twenty, where it says that man are without excuse but to believe in a God because 
not because God says it, but because it's so clearly and abundantly seen in all of his creation, right? So it's really this issue of fideism, which is 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 a major issue with these kind of um, uh, philosophies that are that are promoted. Yeah, I, I don't see why. Sorry. No, go ahead. I, I, I was just going to say I don't see why Christians have to try and explain God's miracles. Uh, with scientific or naturalistic sort of explanations. I mean, we can't do it with even the simplest of miracles. Why bother with with the, the miracle of creation? It's mm. just just go with what it says. I, I might be simple, but I find it much simpler <laughs> to uh, just believe what he says. Yeah. As the owner, you know, you've got that funny hand fish, Craig. I don't think there's too many laboratories on the planet who've managed to breed them. Is there? So you can't be as simple as you like to let us believe. But the Lord has gifted you with with faith and sight, and uh, that's why I'd encourage people to watch again next week for Ray Comfort and his evangelism and faith. And it's just it'll be a marvelous program. So keep watching next week as well. But that that new creationism group is in essence. Uh, I, I think if you took them seriously, you'd end up kicking Ken Ham in the teeth, throwing us out, destroying ICR, and that's that's really where it's going to go to if you want a, a sort of a prophetic word. Good stuff. Right. Um, excellent. Let's move back on to some questions then, Sam, unless we have any other thank yous to cover with quickly. I think that worked quite well, having a bit of a break halfway through the program to do some more of the updates and ministry stuff. But let's get back to questions now. I see there's a fair few pinned yeah. messages. And of course, we've yeah. got our backlog of questions to deal with as well. So Sam, over to you. Okay, okay. Well, we've got some thanks to give out first. First of all, we've got to give out a thanks to Stacey H for nine ninety nine US buckaroos. Pop in, just say hi, miss y'all. God bless you and keep you. God bless you, Stacey. Thank you so much for the nine ninety nine US buckaroos. Uh, and we've also had a nice message from Steve Strangoner. Uh, who says, uh, theistic evolutionists want to have it both ways by trying to appropriate the truth of God to justify a lie. God's word is clear. Six little, little days. Yom, thank you for speaking God's whole truth whilst not giving a, any quarter to false teachers who want, uh, I'll have to read out the rest on here, um, uh, who want to water down the plain and simple truth. Blessings to Anne McKay too. Can I Thank just uh, make a um, quick disclaimer, okay, so that there's no ambiguity in our words. Uh, it is clear from both his book and stuff that has uh, with her conversations that Ken Colson is not a theistic evolutionist, and uh, we mm. never meant that in any of the reviews. What we're doing is showing that the underlying philosophy that he uses is the same underlying philosophy that the theistic evolutionists use, as do many other people, right? This present is the key to the past. And so you'll find that in our review, we have a, a posting up right on the Ask John Mackay site, which is fairly short. Right. And then you've got the two in-depth reviews, the original one and the, the new one that went out, which you can find from that. But it's probably worth um, uh, just sort of quoting from the from the end of the um sort of little snippet review that it puts out is our brief answer to the question. Uh, the question is what do you think of the creation unfolding by Ken Colton? Is it evolutionist? Our brief answer to the question is the book is not evolutionist, as in the standard evolutionary taught in schools, universities, and the media today, but it is not biblical creation either. 
Okay, so we're not calling Ken Colton an evil, a theistic evolutionist, but we are saying there are some serious issues, particularly with the two main underlying philosophies of his idea, which is that number one, the present is the key to the past, and number two, fideism, which is God built ambiguity into the creation to make it look old. So just to, just to launch uh, off from that, Joe, and to thank Steve in the USA for his comment and having been to your church and know your family quite well, even though it's COVID years since we've been allowed to uh, actually see you. We're looking forward to that changing. But I know how highly your, your group, your church, holds Martin Luther's commentary on Genesis. And Martin Luther's commentary on Genesis got a marvellous quote that if you cannot understand how God could have made the world in just six days, then grant the Holy Spirit the, the, the <laughs> honour of being more wise than you are. Uh, and that's a really important distinction we need to make. If you're struggling with six days, the problem is not with God. It's not with God's word. It's with you. Hmm. Great stuff. Great stuff. All right. Joseph, could I add something? You Absolutely. Go for it. The present is the key to the past. Uh, as a scientist, one of the main issues I have with that doesn't matter what the process is. I took quite a bit of statistics, and statistics, they warn you about extrapolating outside of the range of your data. Hmm. We don't have anyone who's made these pro measurements, doesn't matter what the process is, in the distant past. So if you make in measurements today, whether you've measured it over minutes or 100 years, yeah. scientifically, you cannot extend it very much past that range of data. So just the whole theory, anything that's based on this, the present is the key to the past, is outside of science. Mm -hmm. mm. Great stuff. Yeah, great stuff. Yeah. Uh, we've lost John very briefly, but I'm sure he will be back. And we've still got about uh, 40 minutes of the program left, yeah. so plenty of time for questions and moving forward. Um, Sam, how about a, a, another question? Yeah, sure. I've got this one coming from Keith, uh, who says, uh, Creation Research, do you have any children's books available? We do. We do. Uh, we do. Uh, oh, good question. We like those sort of questions. Good stuff. I'll, uh, I'll put myself full screen so I can... Oh, no, that's Joe. That's me. Hello. I know. There we go. All right, there we go. That's better. Uh, so we do have a multitude of children's books that are available. Uh, we've got How Did Noah Do It? There we go. Uh, we've also got How Did Baby Elephant get such a long long nose uh, that's a lovely uh, kids book there uh, we've also got uh isaac the star boy is that still in stock yes it's still in stock yes yeah both in uh, the uk and in australia it's, it's a it's a christmas book but it's still good it's a, it's full color uh, it's worth reading all the year round yeah yeah exactly. yes quite, quite uh we've got what happened to the dinosaurs there we go my grandkids love that book yeah, it's got it's enhanced as well with the uh, AR app as well, so that can make it come alive if you're using your smartphone. Um, who made all the dinosaurs? There we go. Adam and Eve and the monkeys in the trees. There we go. Adam and the dinosaurs. There you go. 
We've also got um, tight smarts and fossil fights. I know when I was I was younger, I enjoyed this sort of stuff. So chances yeah. are your kids might do as well. And uh, I certainly enjoyed this when I was growing up. Um, well, not necessarily growing up when I was a bit older, but this is uh, if you've got older kids, this might be a, a good one for them. Untold Secrets of yes. Dire Dragons. This is a fantastic book, yeah. full color. It shows yes. you all uh, the examples <clears throat> around the world of dinosaurs. I've literally just turned to Carlisle Cathedral where it has a picture of a sauropod on where someone is buried. Um, so that's very interesting. It's all full color, lovely yeah. illustrations, really great stuff. So let me take myself off full It's screen. also worth pointing out as well that we have at least three other titles which we want to get published. They are already published and printed in Australia, um, but with the cost of uh, shipping, going up and up and up we still haven't yet received them in the united kingdom uh, and so we uh, found that it's actually more cost effective to print them in the uk and then ship them over to the states and stuff like that so uh, keep supporting us and uh, if you want to see the new kids books titles as well as some of the uh, new archaeology titles and you need to send a big donation to the creation research trust so we can afford to do that or you need to come to the meeting I'm running tonight down mm. here in Wonga, you know, where, where on earth I am. Wonga Thaggy, that's right. And there's going to be kids there tonight and tomorrow and tomorrow night. So the new books are there. And sorry, Joe, you haven't got them all printed over there in the UK, but you will catch up. It will be very soon, very soon. Yeah. Good stuff. And it's also, it's also worth pointing out as well, we do have some documentaries that are aimed towards kids as well. Uh, like dinosaurs, the rest of the tale. That that I had that on VHS, and that got worn out. <laughs> like I had the fuzzy white lines on 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 that. Uh, that was that was great. So um, have a look through our library um, and see if you can find some stuff uh, that you'd like for your kids. Uh, let's pick a historical question because we've done a few from our chat today. Um, so this one is an interesting one. Uh, this comes in from Echoing uh, Erdite. Uh, if nothing is done with genetic entropy, how much longer can our genomes last? Good question. That is actually a, a serious issue, uh, and uh, mm -hmm. biologists are seriously worried about it um, yes. in, in terms of what, what's called genetic load. We're all carrying around mm -hmm. uh, a load of mutations, and with every generation, um, a few more are added. Uh, so there, there has been all sorts of speculation. The trouble is they don't like to research it too well because the answers does, doesn't come out in terms of millions of years. Yeah. And it doesn't work going backwards the other way as well. Uh, and uh, I, I remember a, a classic study, which I often talk about in one of my presentations on mutations, where someone looked at uh, the mutation rate, and this was before the, the great genome revolution, um, but back in, it was in 1999, and uh, they looked at the supposed um, number of, of mutations that are occurring with each generation and the assumption that the human uh, humanity evolved from apes about three million years ago and they put all of that data together and, and came out that, well, we should all be dead three times over, so how come we're not extinct? Uh, and so that is a serious problem. And uh, yes, at the current rate, the answer is it's not millions of years, it's um, thousands. But um, come on, the, uh, the, the, 
force of evolution. We're going to evolve into something better, aren't we? Aren't we going to be something better soon? I'm, I'm going to be better looking. <laughs> Glenn, do you have anything to add to that? No, I've just read similar reports to what yeah. Diane was saying. Yeah. In fact, Craig, your experience in forestry, we've been breeding one tree over and over again, and this is a real problem for Pinus radiata, isn't it? The the uh, decline in the quality of the whole genome for the mm. plant as a species. Well, that's right. Pinus radiata would be one of the most widely planted trees on the planet. And, uh, and it's been genetically selected for its wood quality, basically. They, they like, you know, to have straight wood, not spirally wood, the right sort of branching structure, good growth rates and so on. But uh, they're very concerned to keep the, uh, you know, limited numbers of wild ones so that they can have the, the full genetic uh, uh, range there. Otherwise, um, uh, you know, you, you might miss out when some environmental factor or some disease factor comes along and starts uh, knocking over the the limited genetic pool that you've got in your your, your bred trees so it is a bit of a problem um so for yeah. those of you sorry go ahead even one of the most yeah uh, so for those of you who are farmers out there beware the limits of inbreeding because mm -hmm. that's how we've got most of our crops and most of our flocks and most of our herds and it comes at a price right a if you put lots of plants together you multiply the chance that the bugs will ravage them all in one go b if you breed them over and over again for their best features then watch out when summer comes to be longer than normal and it kills them all off in one go so be careful of all of this sort of genetic um, entropy because it works against any sort of progress it works against evolution it does not i'm sorry craig it's not going to make you better looking at all mm -hmm. another example would be uh, oh craig's disappeared never mind i think, he's um, I think he is yeah i, I noticed it was the same with the camera somebody else has commented uh, another example would be the cheetah um because you've got a, a creature which is clearly part of the big cat family Probably the most likeliest explanation is part of the original cat, uh, big cat kind that God created. But you're now at a situation where you've ended up with a bottleneck. And so you've ended up with such limited genetic diversity, you've uh, essentially degraded it to the point where you can't breed with other big cats. And to the point where you've now got a massive zoo program trying to find the healthiest cheetah genome in order to be able to try and preserve the uh, the species, the group of big cats, right? Uh, but they are literally breeding themselves into extinction. Of course, it's a bit of a, a quandary because if you don't breed, you'll go extinct anyway. <laughs> so <laughs> you're going extinct whether you breed or don't. And uh, ultimately, it's that picture of the fact that we've been going downhill ever since man sinned and the world was cursed mm -hmm. and so it's one of the biggest evidences that we won't live forever of course i mean live forever as a as a as a as a, as a group right as a as a creature the, the the life won't last forever because it's constantly going downhill um it might take some creatures like the cheetah less time than it does other creatures to go extinct but ultimately it's a downhill spiral the entire way it's completely mm -hmm. the opposite to what evolution teaches um completely the opposite Okay, next question, Sam. 
Alrighty. Uh, so we have had uh, quite a few questions for a gentleman called Transbluency. Um, so this uh, will choose just one at random. Uh, here we go. Um, how long do you think it will take for the majority of creation organizations to agree that dinosaurs have feathers? We were discussing this in our pre-show <laughs> earlier. And how long before they agree that birds meet the definition of dinosauria? Okay. If I could just comment on some politics before we go into the science, because I know that uh, both John and Diane will have plenty to say about the science, and we actually have some fossils of purported dinosaur feathers here in the Creation Research Museum. But I found it interesting that, you know, we were talking earlier about Ken Colson, right? Well, one of the groups that he belongs to is a, a group called New Creation. Uh, and they refer, uh, they're referred to as the new creationists. Others have referred to them as young earth evolutionists. And what's interesting is you'll find that the new creationists or the young earth evolutionists, you know, take your pick where you want to call them, um, are the really only creation groups that have started claiming that dinosaurs had feathers. Uh, and they uh, will simply explain it as, well, God must have created them with feathers. But... Um, I, I think we're still, all in, to take the question as straight up without even discussing whether or not we believe dinosaurs had feathers or not, I think you're quite a way off uh, from getting the majority of creation organizations mm. agreeing that dinosaurs had feathers. It's certainly the minority at the moment. And the interesting connection is the fact that you've got this underlying philosophy that of trying to fit naturalistic processes, regardless of what you want to define naturalistic as, ultimately it's natural processes into the Bible with really no need, you know, you, you end up with the conclusion that there's no need for supernatural processes. So it's an interesting to see what other people are coming up with. But um, John and Diane, why don't we, we have a chat about dinosaurs with feathers or not? Okay, I'll have one brief comment, then Diane can take over. Um, the whole issue here is not, is it science or is it religion? If you get sidetracked into those two areas, you'll be totally lost and never reach a conclusion. The whole issue here is not it, what does the majority believe? Because mm -hmm. science and truth are not involved in democracy. Uh, it's got nothing to do with that. The only issue involved is, is it true? Is it right? And that's the one you need the criteria for. When the scripture says, test everything, only keep the things that are the majority. No, it doesn't say that. <laughs> only keep the things that are provably scientific. No, it says only keep the things that are true or right. Now, the original context is about morality, but it also covers everything. Your issue is, is it right or is it wrong? Not is it science or is it religion, not is it, is it the majority view or the minority view, because so often throughout history that one person who was the enemy of everybody because they all hated him because he or she said, this is right, and they all disagreed. Well, in the end, that person, that single stand, turned out to be totally correct. So ignore, even in Christian circles, do the majority of creations believe what? It's irrelevant what the majority of Christians believe. I know that sounds like heresy, but it is absolutely irrelevant. The only issue is, is it right or is it wrong? Diane? Yes, going back to uh, dinosaurs and feathers and birds, uh, we do have a question on the Ask site, uh, which was sent in when this whole issue started coming up. 
And uh, there are two issues to consider when you're looking at a fossil that's supposedly uh, a feathered dinosaurs. Well, for a start, are they feathers? And there are lots of reports that describe things like proto-feathers, but if you look at them in the professional literature, they're not feathers at all. They're just fibres. And, and some of them are branched, but they're not like feathers at all. They're, they're just fibres. And even one of uh, the bird experts uh, named Alan Fiducia back in this time uh, said, you know, the, these are not feathers. They're, they're just fibres from the skin because there's lots of fibrous proteins in skin um, and they've been flayed out as part of the fossilization process. And that certainly fits with the sort of feather, things that are presented as being feathered dinosaurs. So that's one question you have to ask. Are they actual feathers or are they just fibres? We've also written about a few of these reports in our fact file. That's our archive of, of newsletter items. Um, and then in the fossil record, there are some odd looking creatures that definitely do have feathers. The most famous one would be Archaeopteryx. Many of you, you may have seen many pictures of this. Some of you may have seen some of the original specimens. Yes, it definitely does have feathers. It's an odd-looking creature, so you need to say, well, is it a dinosaur? And the answer for Archaeopteryx and for some of these other ones is not, because further research into these whole specimens, not just the feathers, but into the, um, the head, the inner ear, the brain size, the, um, the whole structure of the fossil, is that it's not a dinosaur, it's a bird. It's an odd-looking bird that we don't have anymore, but all that means is that it died out. It doesn't mean that it evolved into a dinosaur. So keep those two thoughts in mind. Are they feathers? And is this creature a bird or a dinosaur? And the, uh, re the research on these feathered creatures, the more we do it, the more we can do um, sort of very precise scanning these days at looking at the internal structure of some of these creatures. They were birds, the ones that actually have feathers. So keep those two thoughts in mind when you come across a, a story about a feathered dinosaur. And uh, perhaps Joseph could add to that uh, as well with some of the well, other uh, I've actually got a quote from Alan Fiducia I just pulled up. Do you, do you want me to just quickly yes, go ahead. read that out? So, so um, this is uh, Fiducia who's, uh, as Diane said, a, a feather expert. He's an evolutionist as well. He was a... Um, at the University of North Carolina and in 2005 he said with the advent of feathered dinosaurs we are truly witnessing the beginnings of the meltdown of the field of paleontology just as the discovery of a four-chambered heart in a dinosaur described in 2000 in an article in science turned out to be an artifact feathered dinosaurs too have become part of the fantasia of this field much of this part of the delusional fantasy of the world of dinosaurs, the wishful hope that one can finally study dinosaurs at the backyard bird feeder. It is now clear that the origin of birds is a much more complicated question than has been previously thought. Mm. Let the evolutionists say I, I always remember the um, inconsistency. Mm. Uh, it was a few years back. They published in National Geographic about mm. uh, feathered dinosaurs, right? Not the famous Archaeoraptor, which is another thing that National Geographic published, which turned out to be the complete mm. fake, right? 
Um, mm -hmm. Basically, it was literally a dinosaur and a bird smushed together. But in this other article, they had a wonderful progression of bird evolution, right? So you started with a velociraptor, you know, the famous velociraptors, mm -hmm. right? Jurassic Park. And then you moved on to a feathered creature, a feathered dinosaur creature. Then you moved on to Archaeopteryx. Then you moved on to another feathery creature, slightly prehistoric bird, right? And then you end up with the modern crow, the corvid. It was this wonderful progression of look at all these things that are found fossils and you can see the progression. And then down below, underneath each one of these, they had the name, right? Velociraptor, Archaeopteryx, whatever. And then we had the ages. And you find that actually... If you looked at the ages, these dinosaurs are all in the wrong order. These birds are all in the wrong order. In fact, the oldest creature or the oldest fossil out of all of these lovely progression was the Archaeopteryx, which is a Jurassic bird. And yes, it's the Natural History Museum that did the research, right? They actually scanned the inside of one of their best preserved examples, which had been given to Richard Owen himself. And you find that it actually had got a bird's brain, right? Which is completely different to a reptile's brain. There's no doubt about it. Archaeopteryx was a bird. And that was the oldest creature there, right? Even by evolutionary standards. And about 200 million years old from Germany. It's the original Jurassic, right? And you'll find that the Velociraptor was about 65 to 70 million years old. So what's that? 150 odd million? That's a ridiculous amount of time, right? Between a fully formed bird and the dinosaur, which was supposed to have evolved into birds. 150 million years before all of this. And you'll find that some of these other birds are Cretaceous birds. Well, that's even before, you know, at the same time as the dinosaurs. And so you, they've got it all back to front. Even the fossils that they're trying to claim get this wonderful progression from dinosaur into bird don't even line up in the correct order if you actually put them according to their supposed dates. So there's a whole load of issues, even with just the standard idea of here's a dinosaur, here's a bird, and here's a nice curve up into between it. You'll find that by the time you find fully functioning, fully formed birds with flight feathers and then proper lung systems and brains which can cope with the gyroscope and the navigation and the balance, by the time you get to a fully formed bird, you'll find that the dinosaurs are only just supposedly starting to evolve. So um, you've got a big issue there. Well, as we like yeah, to tell people like the new creationists, and you need to look up who else is involved in in this movement that's trying to be a fast, fastened up evolution, you will find that you have to say all credit to God who created exactly as the Bible said, because there's no other way you could actually make it work. Now, Joe and everybody, I'm going to have to excuse myself shortly to go and look after my wife, but I'm going to sneak a commercial in. I've got this fossil till Monday. If anybody out there is touched and would like to actually help us obtain two of those, the two halves, surprisingly two halves are better than one, and uh, you have all the details. Uh, my friend is willing to part ways with this. Yeah, many, many thousands of dollars. It's a famous fossil and it's well, well recorded and right down where octopuses shouldn't be, right? It was supposed to be way up in the Cretaceous. Now it's down into the Jurassic. So it would be great for our Creation Museum to again disprove another aspect evidentially with the facts, right? So just pray for that. If the Lord is calling you to donate, then we've got a great way you can do that in the USA, great way all around the world. Go to our website. Sam, you can probably put them up after I leave, but I'm going to have to go and uh, look after Mrs. Mackay now. So great to have been with you. Pray for the meetings tonight and all weekend. 
Bye bye, everybody. Great stuff. Thank you very much, John. Thanks, John. I better leave. That's all right. Good stuff. Right. Well, we've still got a, a few more minutes to be able to answer some questions. So maybe we'll have one or two more and uh, sort of call it a, perhaps an early night for tonight. Uh, we're back again. To, not tomorrow. We're not back again tomorrow, although there will be content tomorrow. We're back He's again. Done we've, done we've done enough this week. We've done enough this week. Yeah. Uh, we'll be back again next week. And next week, we've got a slightly different creation conversations for you. Sam, what's happening next week? Now we've got a lot more okay. viewers. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, so uh, we were busy bees. Uh, this, uh, well, let me let me get rid of that. Um, there we go. Um, so we were busy bees uh, today. We had an early start for the uh, people in Aussie and Tassie. Uh, unfortunately, sorry guys. Um, but uh, we interviewed uh, Ray Comfort. Uh, so he's going to be. Uh, we're going to be playing our interview with him next week. Uh, that'll be the bulk of our content. We've got about an hour's worth uh, of content with him. Um, it was really great to sit down and talk to him. Really nice guy, very funny, um, and, and very wise as well. Um, a lot of um, gems came out of the conversation that we had with him. Um, so you guys definitely don't want to miss that one next week. Uh, no. It's going to be really, really, really good. Um, you don't want to miss it. Uh, so if you want to uh, bookmark it, so what you can do is you can go onto our Creation Research uh, YouTube channel. Not yet, after the stream, don't leave. Um, but you can go onto our Creation Research YouTube channel, um, and it should be there in the, at the front of the queue of the Creation Conversations. You see that graphic that I just put up there. Uh, you just click onto that, and then you can click the Remind Me or, or Get Notified, whatever it says, uh, and it will send you a notification. It will tell you when we go live with that, so you don't miss it. So really, really good show with that. Uh, let's do another question. Um, we'll pull one more from our uh, group. Uh, this uh, for the live one, and we'll do probably two more from the from the previous one to try and get through the mm -hmm. backlog. Mm -hmm. uh, this one comes in from Spiral Type. Uh, what does the panel think of the work of Stephen Meyer? Um, good, but doesn't go far enough. Um, Stephen Meyer is uh, probably one of the best known proponents of intelligent design. Hmm. Um, he's uh, along others like um, Belinsky and um, who else are intelligent design. A lot of the Discovery Institute people are more proponents of intelligent hmm. design rather than biblical creation. Um, intelligent design is... Uh, useful in many ways, or the proponent, the, 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 the um, supporting of intelligent design or the proposing of intelligent design is, is useful in many ways, but it does fall short of a conclusion. And you know this because um, uh, Behe is another intelligent designer. Yes. That's the name mm. I was trying to think of, Michael Behe. Um, the place where it falls short, and you'll find this perhaps most uh, starkly in the fact that Richard Dawkins is on record saying he could get behind the idea of intelligent design. Now, if Richard Dawkins thinks that intelligent design is possible, you should start questioning, well, what does intelligent design really mean? It means that life as we know it today was intelligently designed. Now, in what world would Richard Dawkins get behind the idea that life today was intelligently designed? Because intelligent design sounds like 
a religious concept. It sounds like you're arguing that God created, but it doesn't actually go that far because Richard Dawkins is on record saying that if aliens, outer space aliens, highly intelligent life from outer space, seeded life on Earth, then yes, we could conclude that this is intelligent design. Um, so you'll find that intelligent design it can be useful because they argue for things like irreducible complexity. That was Behe's famous argument. They show where the idea of evolution falls short. Uh, they will show a lot of issues with evolution. But they never go through to a full conclusion. You get to the conclusion that, okay, life was intelligently designed, but who did the intelligent design in? Because was it aliens like Richard Dawkins could accept or... Was it something else? Was it a God who actually has revealed to us what he did and how he did it, which is, of course, what we believe? So it does fall slightly short. It still um, really gets you nowhere because it's a philosophical argument uh, at the end of the day, and it comes back to faith. And the whole thing that they're trying to sort of promote and push is, well, you know, it's got nothing to do with faith. If you argue purely from science, well, yes, if you do argue purely from science, you can reasonably and logically get to an intelligent designer. The question is then, who is the intelligent designer? And that's where you take a great big step outside of science and into faith, um, because that's ultimately how we are saved by grace through faith and that actually links back to what we were talking with Ray about earlier um but that's where the element of faith does come into because it's by faith we see that the world as as paul says was created by god right it's by faith we understand these things so uh, a lot of these um a lot of this intelligent design stuff can be useful but uh, my personal recommendation would be to be very cautious about using it. Do what Scripture tells you, which is test everything and only hang on to what is to what is good. Um, but don't necessarily use it as an argument for God because they never go to that full conclusion. Um, Diane, any comments or from from the others? I'm just yes, it's it's a useful tool, but it doesn't answer the real questions um it's good in terms of analyzing the actual evidence that we have in in the here and now and yes there is plenty of evidence for design so if anyone tells you there's no evidence for design that that's rubbish it, there is good evidence for design that stands up to honest scientific scrutiny um, but as you said the next logical question is well if there is intelligent design there must be a designer and that's where we part company with them because we are very clear as to who that designer was. And also mm -hmm. there is evidence in the world, not only of design, but also of degeneration. The world is um, full of wonderful and beautiful design and we use that in, in our work, in our evangelism, but the world has also fallen. Um, the world is full of horrible things and people notice those as well. And they do ask questions like that stinging tree that Craig brought up. Uh, that has to be explained as well. And it can't be explained just by intelligent design by some sort of force that's out there. Uh, so you do need more information. And that's where you have to go to the scriptures. So it doesn't answer the question, who is the designer? It doesn't answer the question, well, there are clever and wonderful, beautiful things in the world, brilliant design, 
but there are some things that just don't work and there are some things that are positively dangerous. So why are they in the world? Intelligent design doesn't answer those questions. However, the scriptures do, the Bible does, mm. and all of those answers can be found in Jesus Christ. And ultimately, that is our aim, not to get people just to believe in design. That can be the first step. Uh, in quite a long journey sometimes, but the end of the journey has to end with Christ, the creator, judge, and mm -hmm. saviour. And, um, and that's great. That's great, Diane. Well done. And yeah. You point out, Diane, it can be the end of a long journey, but remember when you're talking to somebody, it may be the mm -hmm. only chance that they have exposure to that end of journey, right? So don't yeah, take the that's right. of, so oh, you, we'll you just go and point them in the right direction. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Don't just go, oh, we'll talk about intelligent <laughs> design and that'll get them on the right track. Now, use intelligent design if you want to, but make sure you give them the gospel because that may be the only exposure they actually have to it. Yes, that, that's, yeah. that's right. They've got to see where the journey is going. Exactly. And it has to lead to Jesus. So we do need to tell them about Jesus. We need to, uh, as well as point out the interesting evidence. Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Great stuff. Great stuff. Okay. Um, let's have a, a, another question, Sam, before we uh, begin to yeah, wrap we'll up. One, we'll do one last one. I think um, so. Because uh, I think uh, I'm trying to find a. Oh, this is a nice quick one. Here we go. Uh, what chemical in bat urine helps to produce stalactites? There we go. Ending on urine. <laughs> what a way to go. Um, um, have we spoken about bat urine and stalactites? Uh, not that, not that not I recall. We've certainly talked about bacteria, but they don't. That's the bacteria. <laughs> but, yeah, there's, there's – um, I mean, to, there's the, the, the statement, you know, urine is sterile isn't 100% true, but it's certainly not um, brimming with bacteria the same way that uh, other waste is. Um, so, yeah, I'm not sure where that question has, 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 has come from, but um, it certainly wouldn't be a chemical either. It would be um, mm. probably an enzyme uh, because the mm. microbial stuff, see, when we're looking into the microbial stuff that breaks down mm. calcium carbonate and produces these stalactites, right, uh, mm. the microbes that we're looking at uh, that potentially are doing this are producing enzymes, which is obviously a mixture of chemicals, which is there to speed up a process. And we were talking with Professor John Walton from St. Andrews University about some of these enzymes, and uh, one of them produces an in incredibly, uh, incredibly acidic um uh, a thing like you know in the, in, into the the, mm. the the multi negatives right mm. in terms of mm. acidity like, like minus fifty acidity which can actually break down enormous amounts of this calcium carbonate so um, it would be an enzyme that we're looking at rather than a a single chemical which is found in something so mm. uh, get the tights and mites book and and have a look there maybe I can have a quick question Sam as that one uh, didn't really go anywhere all right then uh this one here this one from george bond uh, have you read about the museum in egypt that show whale fossils with leg-like bones no i don't know don't shoot the messenger um, no no no, no. I'm, not sure. <laughs> no, no I'm not sure there's a, a big diagram in the natural history museum in um in london which has pictures of whales with leg-like bones but um i'm not sure about the fo fossil fossil side of things there are creatures that are considered to be um the ancestors of whales um 
We have a couple of questions on the ask site about uh, supposed whale evolution. Mm. Um, I'm not sure about the museum in Egypt. I've never been there, so I, I couldn't tell you what they had. I did go to the um, display that the Natural History Museum had for a while on the evolution of whales. And uh, yes, they did have uh, a mock-up of the original uh, whale, the, the original walking whale, uh, as mm. they, they like to put it, uh, which was clearly a four-legged creature, um, a four-legged mammal, a land-dwelling creature. And there's no evidence that it was ever a whale, <laughs> ever a whale or going to turn into a whale. It was clearly a four-legged creature. If you showed it to anybody else, there's no way they'd link it with a whale. It was only that it was put in this context. Uh, there are uh, fossil creatures that do have um, small legs, and uh, but even the whale experts say, well, these um, were not legs that they walked on. They had other functions probably to do with mating. Um, and uh, um, <clears throat> there are other issues to do with the uh, supposed evolution of mammals, of land-willing mammals into whales, just like there is with the bird, dinosaurs to birds. There are other issues besides feathers. Um, so it takes more than uh, turning a, to turn a, a land-willing animal into a whale. Uh, so, yes, there are some fossils that do have some little legs, but that doesn't mean that they once were um, land-willing animals. And the supposed earliest whale, the Pachycetus, there's no evidence that that was ever anything but a land-willing animal, uh, and it's now extinct, but that just means it died out. It doesn't mean that it evolved into anything else. Uh, but do have a look at the questions uh, on the Ask site about whale evolution, uh, and you'll get some more details there with, with uh, some uh, about the particular fossils, and also in the fact file. Just look yeah. up whale evolution. Yeah. Yes, um, Shuggy Ward makes a very good point as well. Coelacanth yes. teachers has to be wary of using leg-like fins yes. as an argument. Yes. Um, and we actually discussed that recently on our program, Diane, around the museum with Joe and Diane. And we looked at uh, looked at Coelacanth and we made the very yes. important point that for years they argued that the uh, from the fossils purely, that the short mm. stubby fins were actually on its way to evolving legs to walk on the land. And then, of course, they found a coelacanth, the living one. They're still alive today, and we know where they live, and they live about as far away from the land as you can possibly get. <laughs> so they're a deep-sea right. creep, fish, right? So it's, <laughs> it's deep uh, sea fish, a very yeah. fishy fish. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, very much so, same. No, good stuff. Well, I think it's about time that we uh, we wrap things up. A reminder, these are now available. Loving Her, Loving Him, the devotional from John Mackay about love and marriage. They are available in the UK. They're available in Australia. Check out our website in the UK. It's creationresearchstore.com. You can order them in the UK to have them shipped to the States. You can order bulk deals and all sorts of stuff, and we'll try and get some of those across to the States very soon. Uh, reminder that we've got lots of things coming up in the next few weeks. Continue to like, continue to subscribe, continue to watch the content that we put out, including all of the shorts, which we're trying to get six videos out a day now. Uh, and it's, uh, it's, it's working ever so well for getting lots and lots of people watching. Six videos a day going going out, which is wonderful. 
So continue to watch, continue to like, continue to subscribe. Join us next week as we are showing the interview we did with Ray Comfort, as well as our normal uh, ministry reports and a bit of a, uh, a, uh, a rundown and a sort of a debrief of the interview afterwards. So do come and join us and watch that. It promises to be very, very good. And yeah, we will see you next time. Any last comments from the team? Uh, uh, goodbye and God bless. Goodbye and God bless. Excellent. Great stuff. <laughs> yes, that's as, that's as good commercial. as commercial. Somebody who's yeah. been married 42 years. I look at John Mackay and the way he's loving his wife all the time. It's got to be a great resource. It's a really good book. It's really very, very good. Great stuff. All right, guys, we will see you all again next week. Uh, thanks for all those watching in the chat and who's got involved. So we will catch you next week. We'll see you later. Bye.